Hi everyone, Drew Perot here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. My guest today is mindset architect Peter Krohn, and we're gonna go deep into the topic of creating more freedom into our life through the practice of awareness. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot. Each week we'll bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is my new friend, Peter Krohn. Peter devotes his life to sharing insights and strategies to create an inspired life and find true freedom by awakening new levels of awareness. He helps redesign the subconscious mind that drives behavior and performance and uses the wisdom of Ayurveda to help people find balance through diet and lifestyle. Peter's worked with entertainers, professional athletes, as well as global organizations. His commitment to sharing his perspective that inspires the realizations of a new way of living from a life of limitations and stress to one of freedom and joy. Peter, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you, my friend. It's fantastic to be here. And shout out to our friend Chris, who introduced us. Absolutely. Of course, I've seen you in the Heal documentary on the Goop podcast with Gwyneth Paltrow and many other things. And if I would condense your work into something, and actually you said this to me the first time that we met for coffee, you said... If I have a product to offer people, that product to the world is freedom. Correct. What does freedom look like in this day and age? I know that's a simple question. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's a beautiful place How to start off. Got? What, yeah. is, what is freedom? Because it sounds so simple, and yet it's so profound. It really is. I mean, and I think it's got different connotations depending on where people are at in life, right? So freedom could be as simple as somebody's got some kind of dysfunction in their body like an injury right and so freedom from pain could be one aspect of freedom but the freedom i'm speaking about is truly spiritual freedom so it's the freedom that is i think our birthright our true nature our inherent state when we disassociate from the limitations and insecurities and inadequacies of our subconscious so that's and that to me is why we're all here that's the game of life is is truly revealing our inherent freedom. Why don't people have freedom? What's the blockers to having freedom in our life? Especially, let's start off in the context you were saying spiritually. Yeah. Or with our mindset or our mental health. Um, I think, you know, predominantly misidentification. So we think we're, we're this meat suit. And at an even more seductive level, we think that we're the thoughts that we have, right? So if somebody says, I'm overweight, it's a very simple expression, but it's, in my world, completely inaccurate, right? Because that would be like me sitting in my car and going, I'm a Range Rover. But it, it doesn't, doesn't even make sense, right? So when we become misidentified with our body and our mind, then we're losing the essence of who we are. So for me, I break it down as we're human beings. The human is the equipment, mind and body. So this, this interface, how we interact with each other in life. But the being is our essence, our soul, our spirit, consciousness, whatever word you want to use. So really, we use the equipment of the mind and body to have an experience, which is for me about awakening. And so the equipment, when we become associated with this as though that's who I am, then I'm not going to be free. Now I'm in a game of just constantly trying to fix and perfect the equipment. Um, and especially when this comes to health, this is so important. Just like you were saying earlier, yeah. people can be, be identified and they can completely associate themselves with a dis-ease yep. and embody it. You know, we yeah. were joking earlier and I was saying that, you know, the reason that we call it the Broken Brain Podcast is that your brain isn't broken. Mm -hmm. And all these ideas, if people have 
dealt with different things from brain fog to Alzheimer's to other stuff. These things may exist and they're real, but I've heard you say that these things are not you. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit more, especially as it comes to like health? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic and, and I, I have many different expressions I use, but one is like, you know, I deal with physics, not opinions. So the world of physics is if we become misidentified with our body and our mind, and particularly for, for my area of expertise, the subconscious where we've got these beliefs of inadequacy and security scarcity. If I live within my mind in a place of inadequacy, let's take one that's very common for people, like I'm not enough somehow, right? Like I'm not young enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not wealthy enough, whatever it is, I'm not good enough then that becomes like this sort of linguistic prison that somebody lives within. Now, that is going to create frustration, uh, dis-ease, the absence of ease, and then that cascades into the physicality. So the subtle level is the mind, and then that manifests in the body. So now when somebody says, I, I am a disease, like I, I am depressed, like... It, again, it's, it's inaccurate. It's, 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 I know that's how they feel, but it's not who they are. And so I like to create separation so that you can sort of distangle yourself from these deeper-seated beliefs of inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity. So that's where, for me, most people are doing everything they can to obviously have a vital life, to be well, to be healthy. I mean, I was just at a biohacking conference. And, you know, the, the technology now that's out there to improve ourselves physically, it's, it's really inspiring. But if you don't change the relationship you have with yourself and your subconscious and your mind, it's all for now, as far as I'm concerned. Like at best, you're going to get transitory relief. Or, or as I tell my clients, like, you know, you're basically becoming the best version of your limited self. I've heard you say in a previous podcast with uh, Elise on, on Goop, yeah. and uh, I've heard you share this before as well, is that it's like being in a prison and focusing all your attention on eating like organic food, right. but you're still in a prison. Still in a prison. You're still in your own <laughs> mental prison. Yeah. So the question becomes, why do we create these prisons, prisons that we live in? Uh, to me, it's the game of life. You know, like that's why we're here. This is the dimension of planet Earth, of being human. We, I get really esoteric here, but it's like I believe we all arrive with these pre-installed constraints. And the game is who can get rid of their fears the quickest, right? Whereas most people are focusing on circumstance. Like I... One of my expressions, again, I say it's a game of spiritual evolution, not circumstantial comfort. And most people are trying to perfect their circumstance. If only I could have, what well, fill in the blank, right? Like the bigger home, the better job, the better body, the perfect relationship, then I'll be fine. But those are all byproducts of when I shift internally, you know, this whole world of manifestation that people talk about. Like everyone's manifesting all the time. <laughs> it's just based on your vibrational state, your perspective, how the world occurs to you, you're manifesting the reflection of that. So for me, until you shift your perception, you're not going to shift your circumstance with any sort of profound, long-lasting impact. So that's why it's imperative, as far as I'm concerned, that you wake up internally and then everything else is a natural extension of that. And that, that to me is where it becomes powerful versus this one-day aspiration that when everything is finally perfect, then I'm going to be okay. Well, that's I use the expression, as long as you think heaven's a place you go to when you die, you're, you're living in hell. Right. So it's this perpetual waiting game. It's like, no, no, this isn't my life right now, but my future, like that's where it's going to be, which if you really get it, is so nonsensical. It's like, when have you ever been in your future? You're, you're always where you are. So if that's the premise that humans are living with, 
which I assert most are, then what you're actually saying is I'm in a mild to severe state of perpetual suffering. But I'm getting there. Because we're constantly in seeking mode. Which is a byproduct of also resisting where you are. So th this isn't it. No, 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 no. This isn't my life right now. But, but I'm getting there. Like one day when I finally get free of these symptoms, one day when I finally fix this fix yeah. myself, because yeah. people feel that they're broken, mm -hmm. one day when I finally get that person, one day when I finally make the money, then I'll give myself permission to be happy. Oh man, then I'm gonna I'm gonna be so happy and I'm gonna relax and life will be good. I'm, but then, with all due respect, you know what actually happens is they're six foot under. They never got there, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, you know, they never quite seemed happy. Hmm. And I'm like, that's going back to your original question. Freedom is the absence of that. Like one of my favorite quotes, I'm, I'm writing my first book, and I write in quotes and then expand on them. I say true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness. Mm. it's not the presence it's not the seeking of something outside of yourself mm -mm. it's the absence of something yeah which is such a uh beautiful almost you know eastern philosophy mm -hmm. in it that yeah. we we're okay as we are right now and it brings up these larger themes of acceptance so so tell me a little bit about acceptance then i want to talk about your story a little bit to set sure. context for our listeners inside of this I, I i love how we just jumped right in which is how i yeah. like to do it yeah but i want to i want to talk about acceptance okay so, so except i've heard you say that uh the first step in healing yeah is acceptance yeah tell us more about that so the antithesis of that would be resistance Right. To go back to, like you said, well, why do we have these limitations? And my assertion, as I said, is that we arrive with these sort of pre-installed constraints. And the game is, okay, you're constrained. You believe you're somehow inadequate. There's something wrong with you. And life will present people and circumstances into your, situa into your life until such time that you see where you're not free and you reconcile it. Right. So acceptance, like true profound acceptance embraces all of it. Right. So even if I have a belief of inadequacy, even if I'm sad, even if I'm angry, we want to see the absence of resistance to that. That is like flow state, say, call it flow state, like where I'm no longer the the antagonist in my own life. Things are the way they are. I'm not fighting life. And, and as it relates to health, to me, this is so pivotal because resistance creates inflammation like it's friction. If I'm if I. If, if my mind is saying things aren't the way they should be, and that could include me, others, and life itself, right? Like where, where there's something wrong, like that lens of there's something wrong is it's there. You don't have to create it. <laughs> like as human beings, people look through the lens of that's something, you know, the way that person drived in front of my car, that's wrong. And I might flick them the bird or I might even get out and say like there is just a natural lens that people look through where there is fundamental judgment. And certainly your family members and your spouse, I mean, forget about it. They're always doing shit wrong, right? So, but that creates resistance. Resistance then, as I said, is the precursor to physiological inflammation. I'm in a state of dis-ease. So for me, acceptance is the antithesis of all of that. Now, some people misunderstand it as sort of, you know, not, not caring about anything. It's like, oh, well, you know, whatever it is, just the way it is which isn't what I'm saying. Acceptance, you can still have this like real sense of commitment to living an extraordinary life 
while simultaneously fully accepting where you are and the way things are. But that's peace. Like if, if I'm not in resistance with any aspect of my life, I'm in a state of peace. That is the absence of disease. That is ease. And that's where some, you know, some people come up to me and like, dude, you know, you seem, you seem so content. You seem so at peace. Well, that's because I'm not fighting what is. I, it, I was joking with a client yesterday. I said, life is the way it is, but only always, right? <laughs> and, and if you get upset about that, now you've got life still is the way it is, and now you're upset. <laughs> if getting upset was the precursor to transforming life, I'd be like, have at it. <laughs> Everybody would be awake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just you're so powerful. Get upset, and that totally transforms your circumstance. It doesn't. It just reveals where you're not okay with something. And that's the gift, to see where you're not okay with something. It's perceived threat. That someone did something, you get upset. What that is actually is life saying, here, I'm presenting a circumstance to show where you're not free. And that's the work. It's almost like when you're doing like a high-intensity workout and beforehand, which is really great in the movement of fitness, we're putting so much emphasis on mobility and stretching and rolling out. When you use a roller, you're looking for tension. Mm -hmm. You're specifically looking for tension yeah. in your body, in your hip flexors, in your calves. When you find that tension, a good trainer is going to tell you, go deeper into it. Yeah. Because that's the thing that's limiting your workout. Mm -hmm. We need to find that now spiritually. And I've said, I've heard you say that the first step for most people to make this really practical, to take all these ideas is where in your life are you upset? Yeah. What a gift. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, life will present people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. And, and, and to take it even a notch deeper, which is the way I look at it is like, I ask myself the question, can I be with this? which may seem like a weird term, but can I be with this? Whatever's happening. If I can't be with, like, whatever the circumstance, whatever someone said to me, good or bad, whatever didn't go the way I thought I wanted it to go, if I can be with that, meaning that I stay still, I stay centered, I stay at peace, then there's power in that. If I get upset, then my brain is telling me that there's a potential threat. I'm not going to be okay. That's the way it's being interpreted. So that's the opportunity for us to recognize that we're lying to ourselves. And that's fight or flight. That's sympathetic nervous system, cortisol, adrenaline. Now I'm, now I'm ready to go because someone said blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you, it's just nonsensical when you really get it. It's like they made a noise and my whole system went into like fight or flight. I mean, if they were speaking Chinese, you wouldn't even get upset because you wouldn't understand. <laughs> but I interpret it in a way that threatens my belief that I need to protect myself which is especially important for this podcast and the themes of this podcast as a whole the broken brain podcast is that for people that are on their quest mm -hmm. quote unquote for creating healing in their body yeah uh there's often the feeling of having been wrong people have been have gone through traumatic experiences which are very you know real for them yeah and as part of the larger journey your your big message and this is a big part of what you talked about in the documentary Heal, which is mm -hmm. on Netflix, so everybody can check it out, is even if you do everything right, you eat the right diet, you are taking the right supplements, those mm -hmm. things are all maybe important, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't have your mindset right, if you still have this resistance, if you still yeah. have this judgment towards others, which is really a reflection of a judgment towards yourself, you're never really fully 
going to get better. No. And just to break it down to real practical terms, and this is where I love having studied Ayurveda for two decades, you know, to recognize the, the correlation between mindset and physiology or psychology and physiology is that I'm blessed to work with some pretty extraordinary people in the world, high-end performers in business, entertainment, sports. So they have great resources. You know, they're able to afford chefs, trainers, like whatever they need, body workers. But if they're still internally in this constraint of some kind, then using Ayurveda, and you, you understand this just because of your background, we don't even digest properly if our body is in a sympathetic mode because it's not a priority. If we're in sympathetic fight or flight or freeze, then digestion is it's turned off because I need the, all of the resources of my blood and my strength to go to my muscles because I'm, I'm, I'm about to enter some form of battle. And that's how most people even eat. So they can have all of the greatest foods and they could be following the right diet for their constitution. They could have a nutritionist. And, and listen, I applaud all of it. I want, I want people to thrive. I really do. I care immensely about people's wellness. But I want them to understand that if you're in a prison mentally, then it's, it's transitory at best. It's not going to last. And you're wasting time and resources with all the best intentions in the world but if you're not free internally, if you're not reconciling, what is the fear? Why am I in such a state of stress? Why am I eating my lunch in my car, driving to another meeting? Like that is, that is not the precursor to vitality. And I understand it. And I have all the sympathy in the world that people are doing the best they can. I have no judgment. But I want people to wake up and start truly nurturing themselves, truly loving themselves, and to see that they're not doing that. It's not wrong, but it doesn't work. So that's why just even understanding the physics of our autonomic nervous system. And if you're going to eat food and nurture your system so there's this beautiful cascade through all your tissues to your cells, to your hair, your skin, your vitality, then it starts with good digestion. But if you're in fight or flight, then digestion is not working. Because sometimes there's a conflict and I'm, you've yeah. shared with me there's clients that come to you and they might be doing the things right, but then there's... They're making their body wrong for something or they believe that their body is wrong. And so there's this conflict. One thing's going in one way, another thing's going in another. They're trying to eat all the right foods. Yeah. But inherently, at every moment and every day, their subconscious is constantly sending – it has a record on repeat that's telling their body, you're wrong, I don't like you, you're bad, you failed me. Yeah. And what happens to every cell in your body when that's the record that it hears on repeat? And especially, I think, for women, you know, there's so much stress um, for women with their appearance. You know, I think for guys, it's more about performance, like, and this is primal, right? Like, you know, the alpha male, survival of the fittest, and then the, the woman has to be the most beautiful so that she gets picked by the alpha male. This is just like deep in our genes for survival. So the stress that women put on themselves over their body appearance and body image, it's, that alone is a disease, a dis-ease which that then has a cascade in all sorts of arenas, like the way they relate to people, the way they, they don't have good, healthy relationships, where they may attract a male who doesn't appreciate them because that's a reflection of the fact that they don't appreciate themselves. You know, it's, it's sort of cliche, but the, the absence of self-love for self is going to attract somebody who equally will reflect that. You know, so a woman who's in some kind of abusive relationship, doesn't have to be physically abusive, but just not where she's not revered, she's not honored, she's not loved, she's not held. All of those energies are a reflection of her relationship with self. And that's, again, where the healing happens. Like, why do I keep having the same 
you know, bad relationship. Well, you haven't healed, quote unquote, the relationship with self. You haven't discovered your own inherent value. You're not, you're not honoring and holding and loving yourself in a way that that then becomes a precursor to what you expect from others. And that, that's not an easy journey. I mean, that's to me is why we're here. Like it really boils down to love and self-love. Yeah, and men have it. Men have their own version, typically in society, and people yeah. and human beings all have their version. And I want to come back to that a little bit more. Sure. I want to set the stage and set a little context. Mm -hmm. Share with the audience a little about your life growing up. You went through some pretty profound experiences early on that yeah. led to some major lessons in in life. Can you share that with us? Of course. No, happy to. Um, I mean, I grew up in Southeast England and I was uh, only child of two really just beautiful parents. Um, my mom passed of cancer when I was seven. So it was very early for a, for a little boy to lose that mother archetype. And she'd been sick for a few years because she had cancer. And um, so that was tough, and I don't know if I ever really processed that. I've done a lot of work since, but at the time, I, you know, it's like, how how do you explain that to a seven year old? It just it's you don't have the the resources. But um, it made my dad and I immensely cl close, and he was such a loving man, and I'm very blessed to have had him. And then sadly, when I was seventeen, he went to work one day and never came back. Um, because he was working on these boats that uh, we call ferries in England that go between England and France or England and Belgium. And the boat that he worked on happened to capsize in one of the harbors in Belgium. And at the time, this is many years ago now, um, you know, it was sort of a major disaster. So it's all over the news for days, you know, because they're pulling people out of the water. And it happened very early. It was in March. So the water's cold. And, and there were about 1,500 people on the boat. And I, I, I don't know the exact numbers. It was between three to 400 people passed. And so he was one of them. So, you know, there were some pretty trying times where um, I was blessed to live in a small village where there was a really tight community. So a lot of the family friends came around and we we're all sort of at the house watching TV desperately hoping that, you know, you see that one person on the equivalent of CNN or whatever coming out of the water, they're putting blankets, you know, hoping that one of them will be my dad and uh, never transpired. So so that that clearly was pivotal in the formation of who I was and for many years um, was the precursor to my my big story of loss. So there was a big, that created a big fear of loss. And so when I as I grew up and suddenly, I, you know, when I first fell in love with somebody, my instincts were, you know, don't lose this person <laughs> and no one would begrudge that, you know, because here's a kid who was orphaned at 17. And so anything of perceived value to me suddenly had all of this sense of importance and significance. And so my fight or flight mechanisms were like, do everything I can not to repeat that which is really what humans are doing. Like I explained, the biggest addiction any human being has is their memory. Uh, and with, you know, past hurt informs future fear. So whenever we've gone through something, I don't care if it's one of my athletes who struggled against somebody else, like now if they face that person again, they're worried about the same event. It's, it's how the brain works. It's designed to sort of help us protect and predict. So I had my own version. And so what that meant was that the first relationship I was in that had real significance where I really thought I was in love, um, you know, I became 
sort of a little bit too not needy is not the right word but I, I it was an overcompensation I was the perfect boyfriend but the, that was a behavioral adaptation to the deeper fear of loss so it wasn't fully authentic she just loved me for me but because of how I saw her and her background living with a rock star 10 million dollar home like this she came from a big life to me at the time living in a rent control apartment in Santa Monica <laughs> and it was quite the juxtaposition so I was like okay I've got to really I've got to really show up here <laughs> <laughs> to avoid loss, um, which of course is what happened, which is life helping me to grow and see that I never lost anything. My parents passed, you know, and that's not easy, but I didn't lose them. And that context of loss and shifting that was pivotal in my life, you know. Because you've shared publicly before that that relationship ended and you were you were heartbroken. Yeah. Right? You were yeah. heartbroken and that led to a whole series of work that you went through. Yeah. And you even have a funny story that uh, funny, beautiful, metaphysical. <laughs> painful. <laughs> painful about kind of ending on the other side of that and yeah. something happened. What, what happened after a few realizations came together? I mean, that was the birth of what I would consider my spiritual awakening. Like that's when I actually started this work because I suddenly saw everything that we've been talking about in terms of the mechanisms of my own fear, my own constraints, my own insecurities. So she, she had left, which was life setting me up for success. Even at the time I was like, are you effing kidding me? You know, like where, why? Um, so there was a lot of heartbreak, which heartbreak is heart opening right? Like, so that's a wonderful way to suddenly become loving. Um, and so it went on for a few weeks, it wasn't easy. But uh, uh, the culmination of it is I suddenly had this huge realization. And I was sitting in at the time, as I said, at rent control apartment, I had all my possessions in this small 200 square foot room. And I hadn't been sleeping very well, because the mind is sort of on that incessant talk track of like, you know, where is she? Is she with someone else? Will I meet her again? Will I see her again? Will I meet anyone like that? Like all of these questions that truly don't really have an answer. But it's the brain's sort of incessant fear tape of like trying to find security, trying to find reassurance, trying to find comfort. And why it was so pivotal is I suddenly got the answer to all of the questions simultaneously. And it was three words. I don't know. And, and it was so profound because I realized that not only was that the truth to the question of like, will I see her again? Is she with someone? Will I ever meet, you know, blah, 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 whatever it was. Not only was it the truth, I realized it's the nature of life. That life itself is uncertainty. And yet we have this mechanism, our brain, which is always trying to predict because we're coming from fear. So it doesn't matter how hard we try to figure it all out, which is what the brain is constantly doing. Life is still uncertain. We could meet tomorrow. We could meet in a week. We could meet in 10 years. And we could say, what's going to happen tomorrow? The answer is always going to be the same. I don't know. And for the first time in my life, I fully embodied that state. And that to me was freedom. I was no longer trying to figure anything out. And we could call that faith. We could call that trust, whichever way you want to recontextualize it. But it was for me the most liberating experience I'd ever had. And I also simultaneously saw the mechanisms of my humanity, which is okay. You know, I kid loses his mom, his dad, part. my mom died. Let's recontextualize. I didn't lose. But like, you know, in common vernacular, I lost my parents. But my parents died. And so there's this human part of me that's got fear of loss. That's okay. 
Like, I understand that. It's like if a, if a kid is upset, we can have love and compassion for them. It's okay. But I got the bigger understanding of the game of life, which is to what degree can I be okay not knowing what's going to happen? It's almost like this event is real. It happened to you when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. In the common vernacular, as I said, you lost your parents. It's tragic. It's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It shaped you in who you are. Not that specifically, but it was part of the journey of who you were. Yeah. Your community was there to support you. There were so many things, but it also was reality. Absolutely. It's not to try to turn it into the positive. Yeah. It's not to turn it into the negative. It's to turn it into the deep compassion of this thing was real. Yeah. And I think the question is for a lot of people who can relate, who maybe who haven't lost parents, yeah. or maybe they have, maybe they've gone through a trauma, maybe it's a breakup, maybe it's a losing of a company, yeah. quote unquote. I'm just yeah. putting this in quotes. Of course. People have gone through these things and many of your clients have gone through these things. And I guess the question then becomes is that what type of imprint does that leave on your life and how does that shape you moving forward? And for many of your clients, what are some of the common imprints you see them left with after their story of what they've they've kind of gone through? So they have this narrative that I went through this and I lost something or this yeah. happened to me yeah. or th- and sometimes it's not even known. Right, right. Actually, let's even start there because this okay. is a big question. Yeah, yeah. Do people often know, are, are people really fully aware of their history and their past and the imprint that it's having on them? Simple answer, no. <laughs> and for that reason, there's so much compassion. I, you know, again, I say people can't be held accountable for that which they're oblivious to. So that's where we, for us to have more compassion for each other, like it's something that I get pretty fired up about is like when we judge another person, the audacity of that energy where you're making someone wrong. And oftentimes it's a family member or someone that you would assert you love and yet you're making them wrong in your own way. It could be like, you know, overtly, covertly, subtly, but there's a judgment that to me is such a disservice to self and other because you're denying the logic of the fact that that person couldn't be doing anything other than the, what they're doing right now. It's our mind that says, well, they should have done that or they could have done that. But it's, that would be like me going outside, pointing up at the sun and saying that sun should be over there. Like who in their right mind is going to have that conversation? But we do it to each other all the time. Because we understand the logic and the process of physics. That's why I said earlier, I deal with physics, not opinions everyone's got an opinion, right? But it's usually a reflection of their own sense of insecurity. So when we make other people wrong, we're denying the logic that they have DNA given to them by their parents. They brought up in an environment where their parents imparted their beliefs from religion to politics to whatever. They went to a school and teachers told them this. They had heartbreak in a playground fight. They, they've gone through everything they've gone through, right? Which means right now, at this moment, they are the compilation of everything that has occurred in their life. So for me to think they can act differently, it do, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it's like if you've, you've shared that if you went through the same exact circumstances they did, you would be that person. Right at that moment, you would be making the choice that you're judging that they just made. I had a mentor who would say that, imagine, take somebody you're frustrated with, take somebody that you're having a challenge with, take somebody that you're upset with, and imagine if you could see their entire life, let's say they're 40 years old, it was condensed into a movie Mm -hmm. that you could see in 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. You may not agree with their decisions, but there would be no question about you not understanding them. You would have understanding for how they became the person they were. Yeah. 
That doesn't mean that you agree with it. That doesn't mean that you support all their decisions. It doesn't mean that, and those things are obviously in a way irrelevant, Yeah. but you would have a deep understanding of who they are and how they became the person they are. And that to me breeds nothing but compassion for self and other, because when we're looking at another and we look at whatever they've been through, everybody's got their trials and tribulations. Everyone's carrying their version of their cross, right? And so for me, that really inspires kindness, acceptance, patience, and love and compassion. And that's that to me, you said earlier, one of my products and my main products is freedom. I would also say the other product is love, which is another way of saying acceptance. Like I love my life means I'm accepting it. I remember I was interviewed on a radio show in London many years ago. And the woman said, you know, it was quite a poignant thing she said. She said, I've never met anybody who seems to be so content, like I said earlier. She said, are you just happy with your lot? Was the, the verbatim, the word she said. And I sat with it for a minute. I said, I said, it's an interesting way of asking me because you're implying that my happiness is based on my lot. Whatever my lot is, it could be 10 bucks in the bank, it could be 10 million, it but you're saying that my happiness is a byproduct of that I am content with what I have. But then that, what is implicit in that is if what I have then goes, I'm not going to be happy. Right? And I said, so that's an inaccurate question. How about I'm just happy regardless of circumstance? Mm-hmm. Now that's freedom. And the precursor to usually creating awesome circumstance if you're into that, right? But to believe that my state is a byproduct of what's going on out there, leaves people, as they are today, constantly trying to control out there, including other people. Basically, the brain is telling people it's all automated, so no one's fault, but I'll be okay if and when everything is the way I believe it should be. And then you wonder why people are exhausted. I mean, they are literally trying to control the universe to be okay. What if you could just be okay with the way everything is? What would that feel like? Because it also doesn't preclude that you don't want to take action to improve a situation. You can be okay and take action. They can coexist. Yeah. And that's a profound place to approach uh, healing. Yeah. Acceptance and commitment. Right? So I'm totally at peace with what is whilst remaining fully committed to living an extraordinary life. And I think especially for listeners of this podcast, I try to do a pretty good job of this and be mindful and put things in the podcast in context. But anytime we talk about different health issues, anytime we talk about optimization, including in things into our life, the diet that might be appropriate for people, Mm -hmm. supporting people's journey of having their best body as a physical container that's there with them in life, there's naturally, as somebody's listening to this podcast, there can be a place if they allow themselves to feel like I'm not doing these things. Yeah. And there's two ways to look at them. One way is, okay, wow, does that suggestion, that sounds interesting. Maybe that I want to incorporate into my life. And another one is, oh my gosh, this is another thing I'm not doing. And this is why I'm not enough. And this is why I'm not getting better. And this is why I'm wrong and bad. For anybody that's in that latter place, yeah. right? Where do they even begin? As people are listening and nodding their heads here with you. Yeah. What's the beginning part of the journey that you can share with us here? Breathe. (laughs) I mean, it comes back really to what you said earlier so beautifully about acceptance. Because I see so many experts, again, they have the best intentions, but they're just preaching their latest to-do list. You know, it's instructional. 
Like when somebody comes to whoever it is in life with whatever they believe their problem to be, it's almost in, in, implied that I'm going to get things to do, you know, in the realm of behavior. And my, my, my work isn't about that. My, my work is about reframing. It's about shift in perception. My favorite quote by Marcel Proust, the journey of true discovery lies not in finding new lands, but in looking through new eyes. Right? So I'm not telling people what to do. I'm helping them understand there's nothing wrong with them. You have a great story about this, about a gentleman who was smoking. Can you share that with us? Yeah, it's actually just that's perfect timing. I was going to cite that. So, you know, I was um, actually I was at a golf tournament with one of my um, pro golfers helping him. And it's one of my favorite hotels in, in Phoenix. And so I was just hanging out in the hot tub afterwards, relaxing after the round of golf. It's a long day. And this lovely couple with a beautiful new baby, maybe like six to eight months or so, were just they came and joined. And the mum's playing with the baby on the side. And the dad's sort of within earshot of me. And so just as people sitting at a hotel do, they're like, hey, you know, are you on vacation? What are you doing? And I explained that now I'm here um, helping a pro golfer in a tournament. He said, oh, that's cool. Are you like a caddy? I said, no, I'm sort of helping on the mindset. A mental caddy. <laughs> a mental <laughs> caddy, absolutely. Yeah. Um, carrying his other baggage. <laughs> um, and he said, oh, wow, that's so cool. And he, he, was, he was really sweet. And he basically went straight into it. He's like, how would you help me stop smoking? And I said, I wouldn't. So now, like, he's confused, right? Because based on what I said, you, you go to an expert, you are waiting for their, well, do this, do this, read my book, you know, whatever, follow my blog. Um, and I said, I wouldn't. And he, I could see that he was a little confused. I said, well, because there's nothing wrong with smoking. So now he's really confused because he's got all of the narrative about how smoking is bad. And I said, look, I'm not denying that smoking has an impact. And depending on your constitution, if you're like, like built like an ox, smoking is going to have less of an impact than if you have a very fragile system, right? But it's so the physics is there, and I certainly don't encourage it. I don't think people, you know, should try to lean towards smoking, but it's not wrong, like to get rid of the emotional judgment. And so now he's kind of starting to follow a little bit. I said, let me put it this way I said, if you didn't have any judgment about yourself for smoking, you didn't think smoking was bad, you didn't beat yourself up for smoking, how would you feel? He's like, I saw his shoulders drop and he goes, I'd feel so relieved. <laughs> I said, when you're that relieved, do you need a cigarette? And, and he just had the biggest smile. I said, see, you don't have a problem with smoking. You have a problem with yourself. And it is the judgment of you that is creating the dis-ease from which you seek escape because humans want to get away from pain and find pleasure. And so if you're internally in a state of suffering because you're judging yourself, and you've found relief in nicotine that now has habitually become a vicious cycle, then you smoke, which makes you feel worse, which reinforces the very catalyst for you smoking in the first place. But if you find relief and drop the judgment, to come back to the question originally, where people are beating themselves up about, I'm not doing this enough, well, then there is the freedom, and that is the precursor to healing. When you listen to your clients, are you listening sort of with, two ears one is like okay here's the narrative and story that they're telling but two what's the underlining judgment yes that's well, there yeah so i reverse I, I sort of use the term reverse engineer so someone will come to me with whatever they think their issue is it could be anxiety depression addiction relationship woes can't lose weight you know sort of the general categories of human struggles or it could be a high-end performer who knows that he's super talented in sports but isn't isn't quite realizing his potential 
Um, it could be an icon in business who doesn't feel like his business is thriving or he doesn't know how to relate to his staff or he's got a lot of anger or he's got high blood pressure because of stress or whatever it is, right? So I'll always take that as it's, that's the symptom. And then we want to look at just like any good doctor, Ayurvedic doctor, would understand that symptom is presenting because of some underlying root cause. I'm just doing it for the subconscious. So whatever is showing up, for example, anxiety as a feeling, which is very human, it's not even wrong, but it's usually, usually a byproduct of a deeper sense of the fear that I'm not going to be okay. So that would be the construct that people are living in. And then if we were to reverse engineer that to their childhood, there probably would have been events that occurred where there was a lot of surprise or suddenly the parents divorced out of nowhere or one parent disappeared or there was something that happened that was very scary for the child. And so then they incorporated that as this world of the future is always something to be worried about. Now, over time, that accumulates and now you have anxiety, but it's only because you've been living in this insidious world constantly every day in a basic state of apprehension for when the other shoe's going to drop in life. That's going to leave anybody anxious, right? So I reverse engineer it. So what is the construct? What is the mental prison you're living in at a deeper level that is eliciting the conscious experience, the feeling, and then the physiological effects of that versus trying to deal with somebody's IBS you know, which is because you're processing everything so quickly because you're scared. I mean, but if you don't deal with what's creating this being scared, then it doesn't matter what you do to your digestive tract. <laughs> because unlike hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, most of what we're all anxious about today is not really things worth, well, worth is a tough word, Subjective, but it's yeah. not something that's often life-threatening yes and it's some projection into the future yeah or reflection in the past mm -hmm. of something that just is emotionally threatening or yeah. threatening to the ego i i love to use a lot of humor because i think everyone takes all of this way too seriously yeah. you know everyone's doing the freaking best they can but to what you just said it reminded me one of my favorite quotes i said if it's not life-threatening it's just ego-threatening and that's that. okay but let's at least put it in the right bucket. Let's acknowledge it. Yeah. Okay, if I'm getting really upset about something, it goes back to what I said earlier, can I be with this? If I can't be with this, meaning if I can't maintain my composure, if I can't maintain my respiratory rate, my heart rate, my blood pressure, because I'm perceiving a threat, well, then I'm, I'm now, it's ego-threatening. There's some part of my psyche that believes... I'm in a dangerous situation. Now, danger might seem like a strong word, but physiologically, that's what the body is perceiving. You know, for us to release cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, the body is basically saying, okay, shit's about to go down and I might not be okay. But that quote unquote problem is, you know, my boss has just called me into his office. <laughs> I mean, maybe to get a raise. I don't know. And even if you are going to get fired, it could be, as we've always heard so often, the best thing that ever happens to you. You might not feel it at the moment, but then six months later, you're at a new job and you fall in love, which would never have happened if you, you know what I mean? It's like, and that comes back to trust. Like, <laughs> it's sort of permanently instilling the place of, you, you said you had a really profound experience when you were living here in your apartment in Santa Monica and, mm -hmm. and rent control and, you know, gone through this massive breakup that was opening your heart up. You said you stepped into a place of, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And in that space of, I don't know, anything is possible. Pure possibility. It's pure possibility. So when a life circumstance happens and we train our body and our mind to step into a place of, I don't know first. Yeah. Now, 
situation has no judgment. It can go in any way it wants to. Yeah, that's the quantum field versus linear progression. So it's the absolute versus the relative. You know, the mind works in probability. I work in possibility. Totally different. Like the, even look at stock markets, sports betting. You know, there's this sense of we're trying to figure out what's going to happen based on trends, which is really I'm living in my history. But that's not pure possibility. See, uncertainty to the ego inspires fear because the ego is projecting its own concerns based on history. But uncertainty to the soul is pure possibility. And that's a realm of creativity. So I'm creating my life versus reacting to the one I don't want. That's a very different existence. It's powerful, extremely powerful. I want to talk about symptoms you were just talking about in Ayurveda, in functional medicine, in naturopathic medicine. Uh, doctors are not super focused on symptoms. They right. use the sy symptoms as an indication of what are the common threads underlining. What are some symptoms that people experience in their mental health. We covered one, but just wondering if there's any others that we can give as takeaways to people here. For example, you shared earlier that uh, when people are super judgmental on those around them, mm -hmm. it's often an indication that there's a strong judgment that's happening internally towards them. Yeah. And the question is why? Right. So if you find yourself judging other people on a regular basis, you know, criticizing them constantly, making them wrong, the question is usually somebody who's completely content is not the person to do that. It's no. somebody who's judging themselves, and that's the bigger root mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. Are there other patterns like that that people can use to catch themselves that, that something deeper is going on with them? Yeah, I mean, I can't go through the whole system, both for the interest of time, but also because that's what my book's going to be about. But sure. I've delineated what I consider to be these 10 constraints of the subconscious, which are pre-installed. Everyone has them. To certain degrees, some are dormant. They're not really active. To some, they're just totally defining somebody's life. And for some, maybe we've reconciled or we got over because we grew up and we've matured, you know. So there are, they all have different effects in terms of like judgment, anxiety, depression, fear, like the feelings of inadequacy, scarcity. So as it relates to wealth and our jobs and our worth, you know, and that can show up in a relationship, it can show up in our profession, right? Like, so if somebody feels inadequate mentally, oh, that's what they're thinking. They don't, un they don't honor their worth, then they're not going to garner the salary that they think they deserve. They're not going to attract the partner who admires them. Right. So there's 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 a myriad of different ways that people have these internal prisons that they live within. And that's why I'm so excited to bring that to people so that they can be free of all of them. So the judgment one is probably the biggest because it's not just judgment of others. It's of self and life. Right. So if we're in any state of resistance and I love that word because it helps people to to really just embody it because you can feel it in your in your in your system. Like like if I'm working with a baseball pitcher, for example, and he's got a concern about giving up runs or hitting a guy or walking a guy, basically not performing in the way that he's supposed to perform, then his resistance is actually going to show up physiologically. His muscles will be slightly, if only fractionally, more tense. Now, when you're throwing a baseball at like anywhere between like 85 to 95 miles an hour, and you've got a fractional shift in your musculoskeletal system, I mean, we're talking minute margins here. And then all of a sudden you wonder why you're not being able to hit your spots because his anxiety or his concern for a future that hasn't even happened yet 
is informing his body to be in a slight state of brace, which means he can't actually release in a way that he would if he was relaxed and confident. So that's a metaphor for life, right? Like, so if somebody is slightly concerned about what's going to happen, which is very human, it's not wrong, but it's also not a truth, then you are already creating this subtle cascade into your physiology, your behavioral adaptations, which then are going to influence your results in a negative way. So it's almost like the picture is out of the present. They're out of the flow state. Mm -hmm. They're projecting a future circumstance. Yeah. And now a good portion of their mental energy is there instead of being here. And that's where most people live, you know, is they're in their head because that's where the brain is constantly, constantly trying to predict. Like if somebody goes through a traumatic incident, you know, let's, God forbid nobody is, but like, you know, you're in a car accident or like you do go through a bad breakup that's very painful or you do, you know, get dismissed from the workplace and you're concerned about providing for your family. These are legitimate concerns. And they sort of then get a lot of attention because it's sort of big, right? It's an anomaly to the everyday. What I'm much more interested in people understanding is the insidious sort of subtle trauma that's happening every day beneath the surface, which is the that should, uh, need to, have to, the judgment energy, the resistance energy. Now, it's so subtle, it becomes normal for people. Like, you know, my mother-in-law should do this. My spouse should do that. My kids should do this. My boss, I should do this. Like, it's just a constant narrative. But because we're so used to it, because it's every day, it just is slowly accumulating over time, creating from dis-ease, disease in our body. So that, to me, is, that's what I want people to wake up to, is that they're, constantly trying to as i said manage circumstance and control like when people have control issues i'm like you don't have a control issue that's a behavioral adaptation to a fear if you address the fear there's the absence of trust you're not allowing life to try and support you you're in this state of constantly like being vigilant to manage everything which is exhausting and then you're wondering why your physiology is falling apart your relationship isn't thriving you're not earning as much as you could be because you're too busy just literally literally trying to survive but that's an everyday occurrence for people. It's not just on these big situations. It's even in this moment as people are listening, even as you and I are both sitting here, mm-hmm. the question is, what are you trying to manage right now? Like even in this moment as you're listening, yeah. if people could take a deep breath. That's why I said breath earlier. And one of my favorite questions, and certainly to everyone listening, I say, who would you be and what becomes available in the absence of all your concerns? If people really feel into that, who would you be and what becomes available in the absence of all your concerns? Now, if people get it, they will feel a cascade of freedom and peace trickle through their body like they maybe never have had. And the thing to understand is, I'm not saying their circumstances suddenly magically change, but to, to realize every concern they have is of their own creation. Life, their life right now with loved ones who maybe are not well, to bills that are being struggled for them to meet. Like the circumstances are the way they are, but the concern is their interpretation, their interaction with circumstance. Life has zero problems in it. Zero. Every problem anyone has is based on our perception of life. There's the circumstance of the situation. There's a filter, almost like an Instagram filter, yep. that we place on it, yep. which is where most of our reaction comes from. And then there's the question is, what's really on top of that? 
Is that our awareness? The awareness of that mechanism. The mechanism's automatic. Like I tell people, if you don't create a beautiful future, your brain will do one for you and it's usually not good because it's based on survival and it's a reflection of past hurt, right? So again, one of my quotes, most people are trying to avoid a bad future that hasn't even happened yet. What they don't realize to come to awareness is it's their brain, their brain that is creating the future that isn't something they want that now in present time they're trying to avoid. They're making it up. Like I, I remember working with one of the biggest, you know, MBA centers who was struggling with free throws. League average, 75%. His average, 37%. Not great, right? <laughs> Less than 50% of the league average. So he was struggling, big name, multi-million dollar contracts, a lot at stake, you know, and he felt embarrassed. He was a sweet guy and he wanted to do everything that he could to contribute to his team. And his absence of performance was leading to a lot of like losses. So I went to his house and I said, you know, I'm sure you're getting as much help as you can from coaches, from teammates, from family, maybe even sports psychologists. He's like, I'm doing everything I can. And I said, that behavioral adaptation, as well intended it is, is is reinforcing your belief that you've got a problem. So I said, now what's happening is you're holding on to your history, using it as evidence for what might happen. That's the probability model. And now you're doing everything you can to avoid that sustaining. But I said, what does your history have to do with today other than your memory of it? So I said, what if I told you for the rest of the season you went out and shot league average? How would you feel? His, I mean, his face lit up. He, his, his, his lungs open. He said, oh, dude, I'd feel amazing. I said, well, what you just experienced is based on me creating a future that is as real as the one you're concerned about because they're both made up. Now, that's the power of imagination. It's almost like we forget that these are all just these stories that we've created, mm-hmm. but these stories have a practical impact on our body. Massive. They have a practical impact on our disease state as well. Our relationships, our, our, our wealth. I mean, it is, this is why I'm biased because it's what I do. But like, if, you don't, if you don't do your mental housekeeping, then you can work your ass off all day to try and perfect circumstance from your body to your house to your life. But if you're not, if you're not free internally, it, it is literally like two, two universes, two worlds. There's the you that is coming from fight or flight or there's the you that's free. And I, and I literally distinguish it with my clients. You're either living from ego or you're living from soul. You're living from limitation and fear or you're living from boundless love and freedom. And part of that mental housekeeping that you help people with is being very mindful of how they speak because mm-hmm. how we speak yeah. is a reflection of these constant sort of, you know, you mentioned earlier about people going through a big trauma, like a car accident. Yeah. Well, the question that you said was what's the little car accidents that are happening every moment of every day, all the time. Yeah. And one way to catch some of those is as you've shared before is language. Tell us about that. Um, I love language. I mean, again, if there's something that I feel like I do have an expertise in, it's listening and listening like truly um, with such a, a an attention to the way that people are creating their realities unbeknownst to themselves. So when somebody, let, let's take a metaphor, let's this this mug, right? Water by itself doesn't necessarily have a shape. But it takes on the shape of this mug because that's what's containing it. So in the metaphor, as it relates to us, spirit, soul, essence doesn't necessarily have a shape. But words are the wardrobe for the soul. 
So if I live in a wardrobe that is, I'm not enough, then soul's like, okay, well then I'll take on that shape and I will show you as an evidence in life and people the confirmation of the way that you perceive yourself. So that's why for me, it's like programming. I open up a laptop and say it's a Mac, I go to iTunes. I don't get upset when I can't write a Word document because I understand the way that that piece of software is coded is to house music, play music, buy music. So if, similarly for me, as a human, if I'm coded to think that I'm not going to be okay, I'm not loved, I'm a failure because of past events, why would I get upset when my life doesn't reflect anything else? <laughs> it's almost like not having judgment on the fact that you're upset at yourself for it. It's a product of its circumstances that you put it in. People see this a lot when it comes to comparison on... If you're on social media, I truly believe mm-hmm. that comparison and people feeling inadequate, a large part of it is their subtle judgments on other people's lives Yeah, that then become a judgment and a finger that's pointing at themselves. And the byproduct of that is waking up in the middle of the night and having anxiety that you're not doing enough. Yeah. So that's so perfectly said. So basically looking at anything, whatever the data point is, meaning what is the external information that we're gathering? In this case, we're looking at a social media account. All it is, is evidence. All it's, as I said earlier, life will present people and circumstances to reveal where I'm not free. So if I'm looking at an account and I feel the inadequacy part, it's got nothing to do with that account. You're looking at a phone. You're looking at a phone. But what is it revealing in your, like you could be by yourself in the toilet, in, in your bedroom. It's like, and yet you're having this cascade of inadequacy, stress, I'm not doing enough. So, so the phone with an image is presenting your brain with the opportunity to see the evidence of your belief of inadequacy. Then the, the, the treasure is to not look at that, but to see what is life showing me? Oh, wow, it's revealing that I don't believe I'm enough. Then we get to inquire into that. Is that true? Is it an actual truth that you're not enough? Where am I going to find evidence for that? Other than your beliefs and your behavioral adaptations and the way that you interpret your own circumstance. But otherwise, is there an actual, like, are you, are you designed to be not enough? Is that your actual manufacturing, like, stamp? It's, it, it, no, it's a conversation. And you might have evidence from, well, my brother was the you know, successful one. at court. He got picked as a quarterback and I didn't. Okay, great. Now you've just got evidence for your own narrative. But it's still a story and it's based in language, which is why I get so impassioned about like understanding the power of words. If you think that you're not enough, then like this mug, your essence, your potential will take on that shape. But it's not a truth. And in the absence, in the absence of that constraint, I want people to see what becomes available. If you're not, and again, it's part of my work, I do what's called a double negative. So people think they're not enough. And I'm like, if you're not, not enough, what becomes available? And then people are like, oh my God, I'd be so free. (laughs) And that's where the freedom comes from because the challenge is on the opposite side is if you don't dig deeper we put the blame. In this instance, we blame social media mm-hmm. for causing these things instead of exposing them. Yes. Maybe it's the biggest gift ever that's exposing this narrative that have been there. It's just accelerated it. Mm-hmm. Or putting the blame on the government for 
creating disease or mm-hmm. this situation or my doctors didn't support or this didn't happen. There might be some real components inside of it that are factual things that you experienced. Yeah. But that's not the same thing as this narrative that we place on the situation. Amazingly articulate and beautifully observed. Yeah. And the biggest blame is usually to our parents. You know, and I will always say that like wherever we feel adversity, suffering, pain, it is life gifting us because we're powerful beyond measure. We're extraordinary beings living in a very ordinary perspective of ourselves. And life is saying, again, not to sound callous, it's one of my quotes, you're extraordinary, be responsible for that shit. As a young adult and having experienced the passing of your parents, was there, was any part of your transformation related to any blame that you had towards them? Towards them in their passing? In their passing or not being around? No, I think like many people, like if I were to have gone down any kind of rabbit hole of woe, it was more about me. You know, I think I was always way harder on myself. I don't think I've ever really been too judgmental of others. Uh, You know, and I wanted to make a point to what you were saying, like that really is a victim mindset, right? Like when we're coming from blame, it's a powerless place to stand because we're basically saying, you are responsible for my emotional wellness. Now, if you, if you just even hear what I just said, it's just nonsensical, right? Like you have the power, I don't. Yes. Which means that you can make me go left or right. You can make me feel good, which means you can make me feel bad. I have no control. No. And that, to me, it flies in the face of the truth, which is that we're 100% responsible for our life. 100%. Even if much of our interaction with life that leads to our emotional response, our behaviors, and our results is unconscious. It's still us, based on programming. We might not have revealed what that programming is, but it's nonetheless up to us. That's the good news, as far as I'm concerned. If it really is your boss that makes you feel inadequate... You're kind of effed, you know, (laughs) that's what I wanted to say, but I wasn't sure. (laughs) Yeah, you're totally fucked, right? Because it's like my mother-in-law is the cause of my anger. I mean, it's like you're just handing over the pizza pie of that emotional state to your mother-in-law and hopefully she takes good care of it. I mean, it's just like, are you you kidding me? So anyway, I still want to finish the other point, which is regards to my parents. I would normally go to the place where it's, uh, it's my fault. Like, I I was never the one to externalize my victimhood on somebody else. I was way too, I don't know whether it's because I'm British and it was pride, but it was just like, I I was uber responsible. Like, it's my fault, you know? So the self-judgment was really, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like, I, I messed up, I'm bad, I'm not enough, versus I think when we, when we superimpose and project onto somebody else, it's really, somebody's just really scared. You know, like when people get angry, I try and help my clients understand, look, if your partner, your boss, your teammates getting angry, they're just scared. You don't need to make like they're the ones that need need the most love and acceptance and compassion. So so but my whole thing with my parents, I was blessed. I mean, my dad, as I said, passed when I was 17. And a lot of people like, wow, dude, that must be so hard. And I said, well, I'm not saying it was easy. Clearly, it was my path. And that's what happened. But I got so much love from that man in 17 years that many people don't get in 70, 70. So did I have it hard or was I blessed? You know. Wow. That's beautiful. Going back to your quote earlier, you've heard you share this before about life is just simply revealing. You said life is as difficult as you are limited. 
Mm-hmm. Can you just expand on that? I know that was kind of related to what we were talking about, but just yeah. expand on that quote a little bit. Yeah, and I love using analogies or metaphors to help people grasp it. Like, you know, I take one of my pro athletes to a yoga class, and he's like, dude, this is so difficult. And I'm like, no, you're just tight. <laughs> right? So yoga is a beautiful metaphor for the degree to which we have possibility in mobility. No, so if somebody's got tight hamstrings and doing downward dog is difficult, but it's only a reflection of the fact that you're tight. So likewise, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, life is as difficult as we are confined. Again, to you know, reiterate, can I be with this, right? Meaning whatever's life is happening, whatever's unfolding, if I am mentally flexible, that whatever comes at me, it's kind of like Neo dodging bullets, right? In the matrix. I'm able to just navigate in a way that it doesn't affect me versus somebody who's so rigid in their opinions. I mean, I'm dealing literally with so many clients right now who, one in particular, she's younger and her parents don't want her to date somebody. Like there's rigidity in that situation for her. Because, but then I'm explaining to her, your parents are doing it because they believe it's what's best for you, which is their way of expressing love. Even though that's not actually love, because love doesn't have an agenda, but their rigidity is being superimposed onto her and what she can and can't do according to them. That's not being, that's not, that's not an easy life. That is a life where you're trying to control everything, which goes back to what we said earlier. It is exhausting. And that's why most people are completely chronically fatigued and they don't sleep and the adrenals are shot. Then they need coffee in the morning, alcohol at night. Like again, no judgment. But I don't want people to be hurting. I just, there's no need. Just stop fighting. Stop fighting life. <laughs> what are some ways we could be more mindful of our language? And are there some examples that you could share with us? Um, I think first thing is slow down. Um, so you can pay attention. Uh, I think hopefully through the awareness of what we're talking about, people will start to be a little bit more responsible for the words they use. Um, I can remember in London, I was working with somebody once and she, we'd been talking for quite a while and she had to go and use the, the restroom and she came in with this huge smile on her face and she said, Oh my God, I just saw it. I'm like, what? She said, well, there was another woman in the bathroom and she knocked something over and she said, Oh, I'm so clumsy. Right now, the, what my client got from that was she said, she's not, she just knocked something over. Two completely different things. Right. <laughs> One is a judgment on who you are, or your character. Versus what happened. Yeah. And so she over. said, oh my God, I was doing, like, I, I just, I just got an experience of what you're pointing out for me. Now she immediately got that person's definition of themselves. And we could have extrapolated that back to some of the events of her childhood where maybe her mom said, oh, you're so clumsy at a few times. And then as a kid, she took it on like that's who she is. And now so when an event happens, it's just confirmation of her own identity. So so it's slow down, pay attention to what you're saying. And especially when you're saying I am something or I'm not something. That is the root. That is the trunk of the tree that we're building for ourselves. So that's the thing to pay attention. Like saying, I am fat. It's not, it's just not true. It's not. Maybe deep down, you feel sad, 
because you feel inadequate, you're not enough, you don't feel loved. That doesn't feel comfortable. And you found comfort in food, just like the guy I met in the hot tub who found comfort in nicotine. And you've done it over a period of time, which means that you've got extra weight compared to maybe your ideal optimized weight. But you're not fat, you're a free being who's looking through a lens of inadequacy and self-judgment that creates suffering and then you find a relief from. That's the cascade. But as soon as you label yourself as that's who I am, you could even lose weight. But now what's going to happen is you're going to be scared to put it back on because you've defined yourself as somebody who's overweight. Which is going to cause more stress, more cortisol in the body, which is going to cause you to gain weight. And now you're in the pattern that so many people find themselves in. Yep. And that's why no diets work. Because unless you deal with this, it's all a fix and improve paradigm. It's all so subtle and straightforward, but it's the toughest work to step into. And the most powerful. And the, and the only powerful. game on, as far as I'm concerned, it's the only game in town. It's the only game in town because everything is something outside of, everything else is something outside of you. Mm -hmm. This is all about who you are. Yep. And who we are is the precursor to how we think, how we feel, how we behave, and the results we get. Now, people maybe work on what they do behaviorally. They try and change behavior, but that didn't address how they think and feel, which is a precursor. And thinking and feeling are the byproduct of the deeper programming language of our subconscious. Does that make sense? So it's like imagine ripples on a pond. Like if I'm dropping a pebble and you've got the, the ripples, our results are, say, the fifth or sixth ripple in life, and people don't like the results. So they look to the precursor to that, which is my actions. What am I doing? My, my actions are the precursor to what I have, right? So maybe they try and change actions. But that's not like bearing in mind what are the feelings that were the precursor to that and what were the thoughts that I have about myself and then what are those thoughts living in in a subconscious constraint. So if you don't go, you can do all the things, you can try and perfect behavior as much as you want. But it's like, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's a British expression. It's like pissing in the wind. <laughs> you know, you, it's, it's futile. Yeah. I mean, and people go to bed exhausted, get up and go, I'm going to go again. It's like, I mean, I just want people to be free. Like it's, but you've got to do it from, it's an, in, it's an inside job. It's an inside job. Yeah. I want to talk about our relationships with other people, yeah. friends, individuals in our life. A big part of this podcast, a big part of the themes of functional medicine is exploring sociogenomics. And mm -hmm. it's what I like to talk about, which is how can our relationships impact our genetic expression and actually yeah. help us be healthy and, and the importance of that. Yeah. And whether it's in romantic love or friendship love or fa familial love, how can we work with the people in our lives to support each other in these areas? Mm -hmm. How can we have either, is it having accountability partners? I find for a lot of people, when they have more support around them and they create an invitation with the people around them that they love to step into this space, they're just more likely. Do you have any suggestions for people on how they can create a little bit more of a community or if they, let's say they're a group of friends, let's make this really practical. Yep. You have a group of friends and there is a lot of judgments and there's a lot of negativity and there is a lot of components that are there. Mm -hmm. How do we start to transform the relationships uh, around us or support the transformation of the relationships around us? Um, it's a great question. And I often even get that question phrased in the way of like, what are the tools? You know, like people love tools. And I always say awareness is the tool, 
Right. So even hopefully, like my intention here today being with you, which which I love, by the way, again, thank you, is thank you. Um, is inspiration. You know, the brain will assimilate data through different ways. Like often we think of information. But for me, inspiration is where I give someone a glimpse of a new possibility that perhaps they didn't know existed. That itself inspires a different way of thinking, feeling and behaving. So awareness is the tool. So hopefully from today's conversation, people go, wow, I didn't even realize that I have been making my parents wrong for 30 years for something. I have been subtly but consistently judging my spouse. And actually, I really love them. And that hurts for me to have the awareness of how I really feel versus how I'm actually behaving. So awareness is the first step. It's just, and without self-judgment, don't beat yourself up for what you've been doing. It's invariably a blind spot, right? Like we are all doing the best we can given our current state of awareness. Today, I hope that people get a heightened, enhanced state of awareness. When you have a greater sense of awareness, you can become more responsible for the way that you're behaving without judgment. I, I was at dinner last night with a, a company I'm doing some work with. And I was explaining to the CEO, imagine there's two ladders parallel to each other. And I was explaining something for her and her mum, and where she had a story of abuse from when she was a kid. And I was reframing it for her so that she could just find some freedom and not blame her mother for her current circumstance, because that's powerless, right? I said, imagine I'm like on the 52nd rung of the ladder, and you're on the 32nd. Not good or bad, but I have a totally different view of life than you. And you can't quite understand what I'm saying, but I'm encouraging you to come up to a different level of perspective. And then you're like, oh my God. Like you start to, maybe the 38th rung is where you look over a wall and you see something you couldn't see from the 32nd, right? And so awareness is what changes perspective. We see new possibility. It reveals old constructs which is okay. We've got to evolve. Shedding a skin, every, you know, like snakes. Like if we're going to grow, we have to constantly shed. And so that is the first thing in any community, friends, family, or otherwise, is just be accountable, be responsible for what you have been up to without judgment. No blame, but to, you know, I just had another client literally after I worked with him call his dad. It was so powerful and say, you know, I realized I haven't been the best son because I've been making you wrong for the fact that you and mum got divorced when I was four. And he thought that the joy he had in a family at four had gone, had disappeared with the dissolution of that marriage. And he blamed his dad for it. And now this guy's like late 30s. So that's three decades. Subtle, you know, they still hang out. They go to Thanksgiving. Like it looks good on the surface, but energetically, there's still this kind of like harboring of, you know, you broke Resentment. up. Yeah. And he called him and said, you know, I want to apologize because I don't even know. I was four. I don't know what you were going through. I don't know how difficult it was. I don't know what the relationship was like with mom. I don't know how difficult she was to be with, but I've been making you wrong, which is actually holding me back because my nature, and it gets a little poetic here is, but he realized his nature is love and he hasn't been loving and he adores his dad. And he's been making him wrong, which is putting his life on hold too, let alone the impact on his dad, who probably feels guilt. Now it's being compounded by his own son, even if it's not expressed. Energetically, it's felt. And so for him to have the awareness of that, just literally in one phone call, completely transformed their relationship.
powerful. It's beautiful. That begs the question, is awareness a destination that we arrive? Is it a spectrum? And are there things that Mr. Peter Crone does in his own life to support awareness on a daily basis? Um, I guess it is a spectrum. You know, we could call awareness mm, presence. We could call awareness intelligence. We could all call awareness awakening. You know, what to what degree am I awake to the truth of life versus being shackled by the illusion of life? Um, so there, are, there, there is a spectrum, and that's why, for me, it warrants compassion for self and others that everyone is doing the best they can within the realm of their awareness. Um, for myself, you know, I'm a work in progress like anyone. You know, I say we're all masterpieces and works in progress simultaneously. And so I fortunately, you know, at a very relatively young age, like with the, the girlfriend story we talked about, about 18, 20 years ago, just found a huge amount of freedom and self-love. And that has constantly been refined and I don't strive to be perfect. I strive to be loving and I strive to do the best I can to impart that on others. And I'm not always going to get it right. And I'm entitled to my feelings. If I feel tired, if I feel sad, it's okay. I, I embrace my humanity. So my day to day is just, is really giving myself permission to be human while simultaneously continually enhancing the aspect of my true self, which is freedom, peace, love, value, power, and living from my soul qualities whilst embracing my scared little ego. And that's okay. Mm. And along with all the things that you do, which are the core foundation of who you are, love, awareness, these are the foundations. Yeah. You can still invest in your health. I, beyond those invest, things become, yeah. those, those things become way more impactful mm -hmm. because they're, they're, they're like the decoration to an already amazing foundation. Yeah. And I would assert the only way that actually that can happen, right? Like, so if someone's living in a house that's 1,500 square foot, 2,000 to whatever it is, the foundation for that house is inextricably connected to the size of the house. You can't build a foundation of 1,500 square foot and have the aspiration which is what people want life to be, of building a 20,000 square foot mansion, right? So to me, the correlation between subconscious, the foundation, and the expression of that in life as the, the manifest version is why it's so important for us to be able to recognize, wow, if I want to have an extraordinary life, then it is imperative, it's physics, that I have to have an extraordinary foundation of love and acceptance of self, removing the shackles, constraints of the ego, so that I am actually an expanded version of myself. I am open to life contributing to me. So health, to me, to answer your question, it can actually only occur if I allow things to be in a place where I'm not in conflict with self or life. That is why I love the word dis-ease. The disease we see manifest in form, physical form, relational form, financial form, we could say all represent some form of disease, 
are extensions of the foundation of dis-ease in my subconscious, in myself. If I'm in a mild state of tension, a mild state of judgment, a mild state of resistance, but consistently, then life has to reflect that. And so if I am going to have true health, and we could talk for hours about even the Ayurvedic definition of health because it's so comprehensive. It's not just the absence of disease, which is how Webster's Dictionary defines it. It's even health is defined by what you don't want, right? Like it's like anti-war, anti-depressant. It's like well, you're, you're trying to define health by what you don't want. It doesn't even make sense. It's a totally different topic. But health can only arise in the absence of constraint. So that's why it's such a gift when you get upset or you feel frustrated because life is saying, hey, it's like giving you a little nudge. Like, see, you're still looking through a lens of inadequacy. You're still looking through a lens of judgment. You're still looking through a lens of insecurity. And that's okay, but it's a lie. There's nothing wrong with you. It's it okay, all works out. But it's a lie. Yes. I love that. It's okay, but it's a lie. Like in the Goop thing, you know, one of the things people loved, I said, perfectionism is a behavioral ad adaptation to believing, believing you're inadequate. But believing you're inadequate is a lie. There's nothing wrong with you. I like tongue in cheek. I hate to be the one to break it to you. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> Other than your story of yourself, which is a story. <laughs> That's like why I love working with actors. That's what they do for a profession. Tom Hanks played a guy who's dying of AIDS and he's gay. That's not who he is, but he played it really well. <laughs> right. So what's the role you're playing in your life that is completely a disservice to your pure potential? Right now, as you're listening, whether you're driving, whether you're on your walk, whether you're working out, whether you're sitting at home, that's the question for you, which is what is the role that you're playing? There might be many reasons that you're playing that role. Yeah. As you're saying, though, it's a lie. It's a lie. There's nothing wrong with you. And I would also ask people to ask themselves the question, who would I be, and I mentioned it earlier, in the absence of all my concerns? Because then that's, it's not only to recognize who, what's the role I'm playing that is inadequate, insecure, scarcity model, like that, that's one thing to notice the constraint. That's very powerful. But it's really powerful to see who would I be in the absence of all of that. It's all gone. It's all gone. What be, and that's so foreign for people, they don't even know how to answer the question usually because it takes a minute to go, wait, but, but I do have problems. Like they're, you know, they're fighting for their limitations because that's their, what's familiar. You know, that's the madness of the ego. It wants to be right about its own inadequacy. I'll, I'll prove to you that I can fuck up my life. <laughs> oh, that's super inspiring, right? So, but that's what people are so familiar with. It's normal. It, it's not natural, but it's normal. So I invite people to see what is available to you in the absence of that suffering. And if people really get it, that is, that is heaven on earth. Peter, you're amazing. <laughs> I want to give a little plug for the Heal documentary. For those that haven't seen it, just give us, because it's documentation of part of this journey that you and a few other people are working on with this patient that's experiencing and going through their, their mindset. Can you just give a, a, a little bit of a, two, two aspects, just a, just a quick summary. And then yeah, I'm sure people are always curious, a little inside baseball of, how did that opportunity uh, come to you? Sure. And uh, anything you want to share with the community about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so honored to be part of the film because of who's in it, you know, and like in terms of the the movers and shakers in the world of mind-body wellness, like Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Bruce Lipton, Joe Dispenza, like these are big players in the Michael realm. Beckwith. Of Michael Beckwith, who I adore, is a brother from another mother. And um, I just, 
how I got involved is Kelly Noonan, who Kelly Noonan Gores, who's the, the director and she's the, the the narrator throughout the movie. She is like a sister and has been a client for many years, and so she very flattering said you know without any disrespect to the other players and experts in the movie she said you're the one that's changed my life the most out of all you know you have to be in the movie so and I helped her to get through certain blocks that she had about even making it so that's why I was blessed to be part of it and it has been an extraordinary journey over the last couple of years since it's now been out you know it started with small theatrical release and then it was on Amazon Prime and you could buy it on iTunes and now it's available for free on Netflix so so that's how I got involved and it's um they did an incredible job um and yeah it's been fun I mean there's still so many things that are coming up from that and people reaching out and I mean I have my few minutes I, I did an interview for an hour which um all of the experts did and then of course they cut it and edit it so I feel actually most of my powerful stuff is still on the cutting room floor, but <laughs> I'm now filling the gaps by doing wonderful podcasts like this with you. <laughs> and you're working on a book. I am. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, I've never written a book. So I've been writing for years in my own way, and now I'm actually putting it together in a book. So Beautiful. to me, I really, you know, it may sound audacious, but I feel like it really will shift the course of humanity because it's going to that deep, deep layer of conditioning. And once we change that, then it truly creates a whole new paradigm. Mm. I remember uh, in his book, The a New Earth, Eckhart mm-hmm. Tolle uh, would talk about how really there's only a few true human states. Yeah. And one of those true human states that he talks about of the three is acceptance. Mm-hmm. And when we really step into that, life's entire experience is a completely different place. Yeah. As you're working on your own book, are there any... And our listeners will be waiting for that and we'll have you back on when it comes out. Are there any other uh, books that have been, I mean, your work is an amalgamation of so many beautiful things and life experiences and what you went through with your parents and the breakup, the teachings that you've gone through, you've really Mm -hmm. synthesized it into its own creation. Are there any books or teachers or mentors that uh, you feel like you want to share with the community while they wait for your own book? that might be supportive on their journey of digging deeper into some of these topics? Uh, That's a beautiful question. I I think for me, there were pivotal points in my own evolution and learning. They were predominantly Eastern, like traditional gurus, you know, like so uh, Krishnamurti. I was going to say that you remind me of the white Krishnamurti. (laughs) The (laughs) British Krishnamurti. (laughs) That is one of the nicest things I've ever heard. I've never heard that. I've never heard that expression. Yeah. Because, you know, Krishnamurti, for those that are not familiar, you know, people were always looking for the hack. What's the hack? What's the tool? Tell us the five ways to do this. Even me in this podcast a little bit, I can see myself reaching for that. And you, in your true fashion, because Mm -hmm. it's the truth, come back and said, true it's the awareness yeah it's the awareness i have nothing to offer but just the reflection back on awareness and through that awareness is the path to freedom we can talk about it in a million different ways but ultimately it's going to come back to that you just got to get it like uh, i mean first of all thank you it's a beautiful compliment i've had a couple of nice ones like someone once called me she was a human design uh, i don't know if you're familiar with that mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's like a combination of astrology and the I Ching. i think but she she just looked at my chart, you know, and this didn't know me. And she said, "Oh, you're like the Tesla of healing." Like, and I was like, "That's cool. I'll take that." And then the funniest one was the Financial Times in London. They said it's like meeting Peter Crone is like meeting Buddha, Einstein, and Austin Powers all at the same time. <laughs> but I like the White Christian Mercy, so he's one for sure. Um, 
The other one who was super inspiring for me was uh, Ramana Maharshi. Um, now we're getting down the rabbit hole, but Sri Nisargadatta is um, there's a super profound book called I Am That, which mm-hmm. I I mean now I'm announcing it to millions of listeners, but like I've only actually recommended it to three people, so you know uh, buy that with caution. Um, so they were the they were super influential for me as I grew up, and I loved I was sort of a little bit of a lone wolf, you know, only child, orphaned. You can see the the pattern. So I was very immersed in my books. It was less about what I learned from present day teachers, and it was more where I found old literature. And Ayurveda, five thousand years old, is um, has been such a beautiful contribution to my own understanding of mind and body awareness. Was there somebody at a young age that gave you this book? Did you just fall upon it? And these some of these books that you experienced at a young age, did you just wander into a shop? Did you hear something? All the above. All you the know, above. I think my own natural curiosity, I think as human beings, you look at a child, like what is the favorite word of a child? Why? 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 You know, why daddy? Why mommy? Like there's a natural curiosity we have as humans. And I really encourage your listeners to, to get back into that. Like, be fascinated with life. So for me, it was curiosity. I always wanted to understand me better and behavior. I started in the physical realm. I was a tennis coach and a ski instructor. And I, I can remember distinctly being at a ski resort. And these two men were skiing down that I was helping, both about the same age, identical amount of experience and about the same physical qualities, like in their athleticism. And one was so hesitant and the other one just went for it. And right there, for me, there was this visceral experience of it's just mindset, right? Because you've got the equipment, but one is scared and one is more courageous. And so that, to me, started that whole, in terms of performance, looking at the power of the mind in terms of how it inhibits or enhances performance. So just my own experiences, witnessing things like that, wanting to understand psychology better, um, getting into spirituality, and really my own my own life experiences and waking up to my own humanity and realizing, wow, I really, I really believed I wasn't good enough for a long time. And that was a pretty shitty place to live, but it wasn't a truth. If there's somebody listening today that's working through their own healing journey, what's Mm -hmm. the, what's the wish and the hope that you'd have for them that you want to leave them with at the end of this interview? Somebody who's, feeling that they're, I'm going to put this in quotes, struggling yeah. through a healing journey. Could be a disease, could be a loss that they yeah. feel that they've experienced. What's your hope or wish for them? Um, well, beyond that, I would just say that I send so much love and that is the energy that I would want them to embody. You know, oftentimes it's hard to look at ourselves and much easier to look at another. If that person who's struggling has a child, has a loved one, who would they be in the presence of that person they love who's struggling? Meaning, how would they show up? And invariably, as humans, we love to contribute. We love to make a difference. And who we be in the space of someone struggling is loving. We hold a space. We're patient. We're accepting. And so my invitation is embody those qualities but for self. You know, I often use the expression, the ego doesn't want to be... Uh, it doesn't want to be um, healed. It wants to be held. So the part of us that's struggling, if you think of it as like a powerless, scared child, it elicits a natural state of love and compassion. 
So whatever anyone's going through right now, and let's face it, life can, you know, can be challenging. But I would still assert whatever the challenge is, is the gold, is the opportunity, because it's life creating a bit of friction to polish you. And so just be patient, be trusting, be loving, be accepting, and understand that it all works out. Somehow, life is trying to gift you. We are beneficiaries of life, not victims of it. Beautifully said. Peter, thank you for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast and instilling upon us this wisdom of awareness. If our listeners want to keep in touch with you, how can they find you out there? Um, two ways, I guess, uh, I, since maybe five, six months ago, joined the dizzy heights of Instagram <laughs> and that whole world. So that's actually been fun. I do recognize it's, it's ability to reach people. So I'd love for people to find me there. And that's just, um, Peter Crone official. Um, and then just through my website, petercrone.com. So really I try and keep it limited right now. Um, so I don't want it to be too ADD for people and I'm all over the place but yeah I, uh, I've got more exciting stuff coming out on both platforms so obviously announcing my book and then some online courses and being on beautiful podcasts like this with you so thank you for having me and having the opportunity to hopefully contribute to your audience absolutely and we'll be waiting for that book and have you back on Peter thank you again so much for being here with us you're welcome my friend much love hi everyone I hope you enjoyed the interview just a reminder this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.